so good to be with you. It feels like ages, um, but just so happy to have a moment to share with you what I feel God has been showing me through Acts. And, you know, I had this, um, I was with my sister, who's 10 years younger than me. She has twin girls of two and a half, and she's got a little boy of nine. And I had this realization that young mums are given this extraordinary skill or gift, whatever you may call it, where they are able to hold a conversation and then have interruption, whether it be someone needs a snack, someone needs to go to the toilet, someone's hit their brother over the head, and then all of a sudden they can pick up on that conversation and it's like, there, it's like there was no interruption whatsoever. It is this extraordinary skill that mums with young children have. Can I have a hand for all those young mums who can agree with me? It is amazing. And I find that, like, what happens is, as you get a little bit older, and like my, my oldest is 23 now, you tend to lose that skill a little bit. And I, I don't think men actually get it. So, like, I'm just putting it out there. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to pray because we're going to have an, an impartation so that wherever we left off in Acts 13, despite the fact that we've had some interruptions, good interruptions, we're going to get traction in the spirit really quickly as we get into Acts 14 this morning. Are we ready? Father, I just thank you that you are blessing our spirits, you're blessing our brains, that there's going to be the supernatural traction by your spirit that is going to enable us to have a revelation from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So for those of you who um, are visiting this morning, I'm just going to do a very quick recap. Um, Acts 13, our Jonathan and Jonathan, we've got two Jonathans, shared on it. Um, Jonathan Horsfield, who you've just seen, he shared about how Paul and Barnabas were set apart, they were anointed, they were commissioned, and they were sent on a journey, a God-ordained appointment to share the gospel outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, and they left. And um, then Jonathan Sherwin picked up, and he shared about the the blessing of the gospel and how we steward that. And he did this beautiful one-liner where he says that our lives were never supposed to be meant to be a cul-de-sac. I love that. We're supposed to receive the gospel, but then we're supposed to share the gospel. Our lives were never meant to be a cul-de-sac. If I was on social media, I'd tweet it or whatever, but I'm not. So there you go. That's for free. And we see a pattern that is happening here that when you begin to share the ways of Jesus, when you begin to share the gospel, there are two responses. Some joyfully receive it and accept it and love the good news and others feel threatened by it and they reject it and in Acts 14 this continues this chapter is it's full of obstacles and hindrances and and curveballs and challenges sounds a bit like life doesn't it and it's how we respond to these curveballs that life throws at us that actually, it, that's what really matters. And I believe that there's a mystery unfolding in this chapter that Paul and Barnabas are living in this revelation that they live in a realm. They live in kingdom's realm, a kingdom realm. They're citizens of a different place. And they, they live from their places. They share the gospel in Acts 14. And we have access to it as well. So I'm going to read. It's quite a long portion of scripture. It's going to be up behind us. 
Um, But it's from the Passion Translation, and some of it I'm going to paraphrase just for the sake of time. So you're ready to engage your brains. Good. One person's ready. So when Paul and Barnabas arrived in Iconium, the same thing happened there. They went, as they always did, to the synagogue and preached to the people with such power that a large crowd of both Jews and non-Jews believed. Some of the Jews refused to believe and they began to poison the minds of the non-Jews to discredit the believers. Yet Paul and Barnabas stayed there for a long time, preaching boldly and fearlessly about the Lord. Many trusted in the Lord, for he backed up his message of grace with miracles, signs, and wonders performed by the apostles. The people of of the city were split over the issue. Some sided with the apostles and others with the Jews who refused to believe. Eventually, all the opposition fractions came together with their leaders, devising a plot to harm Paul and Barnabas and stone them to death. When the apostles learned about this, they escaped to the region of like. Lyco, James, Lyconia. I always get my, that's why I've got my husband here when I get my tongue twisted about certain words, to the cities of Lystra and Derby and the nearby villages. And they continued to preach the hope of the gospel. In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas encountered a man who from birth had never walked, for he was crippled in his feet. He listened carefully to Paul as he preached, and all of a sudden Paul discerned that this man had faith in his heart to be healed. So he shouted, you, in the name of our Lord Jesus, stand up to your feet. And the man instantly jumped to his feet and stood for the first time in his life and walked. When the crowd saw the miracle that Paul had done, they shouted in their own language, the gods have come down to us as men. And they began to address Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes because he was the spokesman. And I'm just going to skip a few verses, but what basically happens is that these, um, these, this crowd just goes crazy. They start wanting to put crowns on their heads and wreaths around their necks and worship them. And um, they're freaking out. They have, they're wanting to slaughter an oxen and worship them. And Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's going on because they don't speak the language. But when they click as to what is happening, they're mortified and they, they, tear their clothes, which is a sign of huge distress. And they begin to say, don't worship us. We're mere humans, just like you worship the one and true living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And they point them to creation. But it's almost as if they just can't stop them from, you know, offering these sacrifices and worshiping them. And just conveniently at the same time, picking up in verse 19, some of the Jews who had opposed Paul and Barnabas in Antioch and Iconium arrived and stirred up the crowd against them. They stoned Paul and dragged his body outside the city and left him for dead. When the believers encircled Paul's body, he miraculously stood up. Paul stood and immediately went back into the city. The next day he left with Barnabas to Derby. After preaching the wonderful news of the gospel there and winning a large number of followers to Jesus, they retraced their steps and revisited Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. At each place where they went, they strengthened the lives of believers and encouraged them to go deeper in their faith. And they taught them, this is it, guys, it is necessary for us to enter the realm of God's kingdom because that's the only way we will endure many trials and persecutions. Amen. 
I love the word of God. There are so many treasures for us to discover just in this little portion of scripture. Now, it's interesting that Iconium and the surrounding areas, that is what we would now call modern-day Turkey. So Asia Minor. And this is nowhere near Israel. And for, for there to be a synagogue in a town, there needed to be at least 10 male Jewish men in that town in order for um, it to be okay, or for, the, for it to qualify for there to be a synagogue. And we read in the first two towns that Paul initially goes to the synagogue and he shares first there about the Messiah, both to the Jews and to the Greeks or the Gentiles. Now, I love that. You see, he just went to the synagogue. He wanted to share with his Jewish brothers and sisters the good news of the gospel. But interesting how they often saw the gospel through the lens of their culture, through the lens of their Jewishness. And what I love about Jesus is that he was fully Jewish, but he was fully kingdom. And many times as you read the Gospels, you see how Jesus was willing to set his Jewishness aside in order for his kingdom, for the kingdom to come. The Samaritan woman at the well, that's not something a Jewish man would have done. To heal on the Sabbath. mm -mm. So it was offensive to the Jewish culture. But Jesus was okay with being offensive. Do you ever pick that up as you read the Bible? <laughs> he was okay with that. And so you, you see that they're coming against something. And therefore, in verse 2, they encounter resistance. As the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles by poisoning their minds against the believers. And so they left? No. Instead, in verse 3, it says they stayed, and they stayed there for a long time, fearlessly preaching the ways of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever had a, a person poison another person's mind against you? It's not fun. It's not a fun experience. And in, the, in your flesh, in your humanity, you don't really want to gravitate towards that kind of person. You don't want to hang out with them because you can see that they've been, they've been believing lies. They're looking at you through a certain lens. You can almost feel the animosity that they have towards you. You don't really want to go out for a meal with that kind of person, do you? Is it just me? I'm the only human in the room? Okay. Um, so this is what Paul and Barnabas are experiencing. They can feel that atmosphere. But isn't it interesting that despite that, despite the animosity and the poisoning against them and the gossip and the slander, they stayed a long time. They stayed a long time. They recognized that there was a genuine work of God that was going on in that place. And they stuck it out. And this is an example of what it looks like to carry the kingdom of heaven on you. You know, they're going to be people who just don't like you. They don't like you because of the realm that you're operating from. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16, it says that when you carry the presence of the Holy Spirit, that aroma, to some people it's a beautiful fragrance, but to others it's a stench. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just going to pause for a moment because I feel like 
there's, there's a few people in the room, I, I'm seeing two or three in my, mind, in my mind's eye, that you're in a work situation right now, and you know that you know that you know that you've got to be there. But it's getting really difficult because there's a group of people who are actually coming against the atmosphere of heaven that you're carrying. And you can feel that animosity. And I really sense that the the word of the Lord for you this morning is stick it out. There's genuine hunger there. You're there for a reason. Stick it out. And so we all have a choice in a moment like that to 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 think, how's this going to affect me? How's this going to affect me relationally, emotionally, spiritually, where there's, this, there's a sense of his hand at work in a place, but despite the resistance, what does it look like to stay when there's genuine hunger? You see, Jesus doesn't just commission us to, you know, go and get people saved, and that's it, your work's done. He says, go and make disciples, followers of Jesus, apprentices of the rabbi. A more correct, you know, um, translation of disciple is apprentice. What does it look like to show and teach people the ways of Jesus? In your business, in marriage, in raising children, in communication, fill in the blank. The process of discipleship is our whole lives. It never stops. You can become a Christian in a moment, but being a follower of Jesus is a lifelong journey. You see, I believe that this is what Paul and Barnabas were doing. They were actually teaching um, those who were hungry what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And I really believe that, first of all, we know you have to learn how to be, how to be with Jesus. That's the intimacy bit. Then, then we have to know what it is to become like Jesus. That's the transformation bit. And then it's like, well, let's just do what Jesus did. And that's what he's commissioned us to do. But I think this is where we get stuck. Because most of us, most of us in this room come from a Western type kind of background. We're sociologists. would say now that we are the most individualistic sick society ever before in human history. One of our top priorities is to be an individual. You be you. You be you, you cute little snowflake. You be you. (laughs) Am I not right? You, you, you. Don't be a copy, just be you. I mean, we eat this stuff, we drink it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, don't we? Be an individual. And this really messes with us because the role of a disciple is not to be an individual. It's to become more like your rabbi. Now, let's be clear. I just want to make this clear. God loves our individuality. Of course he does. He's made us unique Absolutely. But what is our focus? To be more like ourselves or is the focus to be more like him? This is really an important question, guys. Are we trying to find our true selves or are we trying to be shaped in the image of Christ in our lives? You see, transformation is an invitation to be a disciple of Jesus. 
So that when someone bumps into you, they literally are encountering Jesus. And you're just ordering a cup of coffee. That's what it should look like. Who you are gets a massive upgrade. And it's not just you becoming more you. It's you becoming more him. It's his peace. It's his joy. It's him unlocking your peace. It's not just him unlocking your peace. It's him being peace in your life. Because your peace is not enough. My peace is not enough. You need his creativity Because your creativity is not enough. We serve the creator of the heavens and the earth. His creativity is limitless. We need more of him. I believe that becoming more Christ-like is what we're being invited into in this era. There's new levels of holiness and purity that he's calling us to. Like Michelle shared, it's that yielding. That's surrendering to becoming more like him. So back to Paul and Barnabas. They have a desire to teach and nurture these new believers. And so they're remaining in this place of shalom, peace, speaking with boldness. And I love the way the father partners with them. He loves their posture and he backs up his message of grace, the word says, with signs, wonders, and miracles performed by the apostles. What are signs and wonders? A sign points you somewhere. It gives you information. And many times on our spiritual journey, you are going to have this incredible um, encounter or maybe a manifestation. But I want to just highlight, it's never meant to be the focal point of our destination. Our destination always begins and ends in the person of Jesus. He wants us to know him intimately. I'm just getting a, a picture of, it's definitely a man, and you have a leather-bound journal. It's quite small. It's about this size. And I feel like the Father's saying, you've, you've written and you've journaled in that journal in, in your younger years, but you've put it in the drawer. And I feel there's a call in your life right now to pull out that journal and begin to commune with the Father again in a very intimate way. I just received that. So going back to signs and wonders, a sign is something that makes us wonder. I wonder who's behind this. It apprehends people. It makes them really question what they are actually witnessing. Miracles, signs, and wonders are for people to see that the word of God when teached is not just the word, but it's actually, the word is power. The the word is power behind it. Unfortunately for these guys, things do get worse in verse 4 as we read. And the city is divided and there's an attempt to stone them. And so they flee to the surrounding region and they continue to, to preach the gospel there. Now again, I don't know about you guys. I read this and I'm thinking if an attempt was made on my life, I would want to, in my humanity, get on a plane and fly to the furthest parts of the planet. Or I would, some, I would want to be put in a safe house in the middle of Canada or Alaska with SAS guys around it with big guns and a helicopter maybe or something. I don't know. Maybe I've been watching too much Netflix. But that's what I'd like to do. But Paul and Barnabas, 
they don't like, they're like, oh, there's a bit of heat going on. They don't run back to Jerusalem. They, they literally just go to the surrounding areas. If you look on a map, which I don't have, it's super close by. And they don't go into hiding. They just continue to preach the gospel. They've got an assignment. They're not diverted. They're not being put off track. And um, I know that this is a supernatural thing because I've experienced this a couple of times in my life where I'll give you one example. I was um, on a mission trip in Soweto, which is one of the largest townships in South Africa. And we were ministering to people in a very open air kind of mall situation. It was a huge And I was praying with a lady for healing. I can't even, you know, that's what we were doing. And all of a sudden, out of the middle of nowhere, this massive big black van just like drove into the center. And all these guys jumped out and were just shooting randomly. And in that moment, it was like this... I felt superhuman. Like, I don't know, this like force field came over me. And I just had this ability to stand in a position of like, I'm on a God assignment. And, And I just was able to intercede and pray for the safety of everybody there that no one would get harmed. And before I knew it, the police were there and these guys ran off. It was pretty much like a movie. And no one was injured. No one was harmed. And you know what? I didn't have to go for counseling afterwards or post-traumatic, whatever. I knew that's where I needed to be. There was no fear. And I believe this is something that these guys had stepped into. They were living from a realm of like, this is our God assignment. We are not going to allow an attempt on our life or, or gossip to hinder us from what God has called us to do. And so it says that they fearlessly continue to share the ways of Jesus in the nearby villages. And then jumping to verse 8, we have this beautiful account of Paul um, speaking the gospel. And then he discerns that there's a man there who's been crippled from birth. He has the faith to be healed. And so he prays for this man and he gets up and walk. And, and you know, even in that, there's a nugget. There's a, a beautiful treasure. You know, I believe that in the past, discernment within the body of Christ, is, it's got a little bit of a bad rap. Because more than often, people operate out of the, the gift of suspicion rather than the gift of discernment. And right now, there is a redeeming of that gift because we need it more than ever I mean, there's all kinds of crazy out there. We have been bombarded with information constantly. We need discernment to know what to listen to and what not to listen to. What to absorb into our spirit and what to flush down the toilet. We need wisdom and discernment more than ever. But what if we were all operating in such a high level of discernment that you can walk up the high street and you can look at someone and you can discern, you know what, this person's been on a journey. It might not look like the charismatic culture lens that we are wearing that this person has to go on, but they're ready to meet the real healer. They're ready to meet Jesus. And I am ready to introduce them. And you pray for them and they get supernaturally healed from cancer. What if? What if we're walking around and we see someone and we just discern, 
they're ready to hear the gospel today. And people just get saved. What if we were operating in that level of discernment? Who wants some of that? Let's pray. Jesus, (laughs) we need your wisdom and discernment. We ask for a supernatural release of discernment from heaven that we would begin to operate as Paul did and see people healed and set free and delivered just like you commissioned us to do. We receive it. Amen. I love the word of God. Again, when this happens, it's a sign that there's power behind his word. Now, it's interesting that sometimes these signs come and people read the signs wrong, which is exactly what happens here. People begin to read the signs through a lens of their culture, whether it be their national culture or their ethnic or their social. Often people read things through the lens of maybe their pain or their background or their upbringing. And in this case, these guys were reading it through an old myth or a legend. And they're freaking out in their Lycosian language. And and Paul and Barnabas are not sure what the heck is going on. And they bring in an oxen to be sacrificed. But it's really important for us to understand what's going on in the background here. And they've basically discovered through archaeological digs and findings that there was um, a belief or a myth that, um, that it happened in the distant past of this town where they believed that the gods Zeus and Hermes had come down and they were walking around the city as humans dressed as paupers or poor people and they were going from door to door and they were seeing who would welcome them in and show them kindness. And no one did. Everyone shut the door to them except for one elderly couple who opened their home and showed them kindness and were, and were very hospitable. And because of this, Zeus and Hermes decided they were going to destroy the whole city, killing everyone. But this one couple, they were going to honor them by turning their home into a shrine, which later on grew into this massive temple that became the Temple of Zeus. So when these guys saw this miracle take place, they jumped to this conclusion that this was Zeus and Hermes, and this was their their second chance to show kindness and treat these gods in, in the right way. And so they begin to interpret the gospel through the lens of their culture or their folklore. They have no proof that it's the gods. They jump in to an assumption and I want to just pause here for a moment because I believe that often we can, we can look at truth, but through the lens of our culture. And I believe, God, as we go into this next era, there's, again, there's going to be wisdom in how we share the gospel of the kingdom with those who are hungry for it. And often I, I think that the world looks at the charismatic church, and I'm just going to be very real, and, and, and sees a, a bunch of people who compromise. Like, why would we want that when they know different to us? And we've created things within our culture that is not kingdom. And there's a purification and eradication of stuff that is just not right. God is calling us up higher. There's a beautiful story. Um, it's, it's called, 
Where were those people? Who, where did they go? That island with the peace child. Papua New Guinea. There were some missionaries who went to Papua New Guinea who wanted to share the gospel with these two tribes. And as they started sharing the gospel, these, they realized that it was just not working because these guys thought that Judas was the hero. They thought he, you know, they lived on a culture of deception and deceit and, and they thought, why would we follow Jesus? Judas is the hero for sure. And so these missionaries took a step back and they realized, you know, we don't know anything about these people. Let's start really understanding their culture so we can share the gospel in a way that's received. And as they spend time with the people, they realize they have this tradition because they were quite violent tribes and they wanted to have peace. They just didn't know how. So they started doing this thing where they would swap a child from this tribe and give it to this tribe and and, and back and forth. So that because there was a child that was born in the opposite tribe, living with their enemy, they were very unlikely to create a war against them or get violent because they didn't want to hurt any of their children. And they called this child the peace child. So when the missionaries find out about this, they were like, oh, that's like Jesus. The father sent Jesus as the peace child to humanity to bring reconciliation and so with that bit of information they began to share the gospel with from a different angle and the tribes got saved there's a beauty of understanding culture and bringing kingdom into it with such wisdom and I believe Paul and Barnabas as we see later went back and began to teach them this because this was a pagan society so after this happens, you know, we've got this crazy scenario. Um, they've been treated as gods. They, um, they put a stop to it. They try to put a stop to it. And then you've got the crazy Jews from the earlier cities who just happen to turn up at the right time. And this is what I find so interesting. At one moment, you've got a crowd who want to worship you. And the next minute, they want to stone you. Just don't go on the praises of men. It never works for you. Anyway, they, you've got these guys and they, they take Paul. They stone him. They pull him out. They leave him for dead on the outside of the outskirts of the city. And I always laugh at this because Luke is so matter of fact about this. I mean, he's definitely a doctor. He's just got the facts down. I mean, the guy's just been stoned. If I was telling the story, honestly, my husband would say, I've got the gift of, he says exaggeration, I say it's a good story, I don't know, you know, anyway, God's really working on that part of my life. But anyway, they, they stone him, and it's interesting, they, they stone him because this is actually a common method of execution. Do you know why? It works. It actually works. They don't just throw a few pebbles. They leave him for dead. And the believers gather around the body and a miracle happens. I mean, in my mind, I think, did they pray? Did they have this crazy prayer meeting? Did they command him to raise up? Did they cry? Were they shocked? What did they do? I want the details. I'm a woman, for goodness sake. But Paul just says they gathered around the body and he gets up. And he legs it back to Jerusalem. No. He goes straight back into the city where they've just stoned him, preaching the gospel. 
Maybe he had Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount ringing in his ears. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because in the same, because, because great is your reward in heaven. Just as the prophets were persecuted before you. You know, maybe he's got that in the forefront of his mind. Keeping the vision in front of you helps you walk through the pain sometimes. It gives purpose to your pain. And um, as we come to the end of this chapter, I just want to highlight and, and focus very much on the victorious mindset that these guys had. The confidence of who they were, where they were operating from, where they were seated. You know, we can see this through the whole of the chapter. The, they positioned themselves in the, the realm of the kingdom of heaven as they encountered every single one of these curveballs. And I, I mean, you think about it, you've got vicious slander and gossip being hurled at you, attempts on your life, Fickle crowds, stoning. What do they do? They continue to share the wonderful news of the gospel. Winning a large number of followers to Jesus. Just love that. They're not distracted. They know what their assignment is. And then what do they do? They retrace their steps and they revisit Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. All the places that they had faced resistance. And they strengthened the lives of the believers there. They encouraged them to go deeper in their faith. This is what we've been called to. Discipling people. Encouraging people. Go deeper with Jesus. Pursue intimacy. Become more like the rabbi. Do what Jesus did. This is what we've been called to. And they go there and they teach and they spend time. They don't just come and drop a bomb and leave. And I love the fact that in verse 22, it says, it is necessary for us to enter the realm of God's kingdom because that's the only way we, we will endure our many trials and persecutions. Now, there's a school of thought that suggests that in order to enter the realm of the kingdom, we have to endure trials and persecutions. But I'd like to propose that as I've studied this chapter, the focus actually appears to be more from a revelation or a mystery that the position that we sit in, that Paul and Barnabas had, that they were seated in heavenly places, like it tells us in Ephesians, we are in him. It says it 11 times in Ephesians 1. We are in Christ. We are seated in heavenly places. It's from that very position that they were able to endure the trials and the persecutions. Because I'm not saying that we're not going to have any trials and persecutions. The life of a believer is full of those. But when we have this mystery, this revelation, this confidence of where we're seated, we can endure it in the way that they did. Like Paul and Barnabas did. And I believe that because they had this beautiful revelation, it didn't rock their world. They were not, they were not insulted by gossip and slander. They did not run away from threats on their life. It made them unshakable 
and determined to complete their God-given assignment. And just as I'm ending this morning, I really feel that first and foremost, there's a real call on us as believers to align ourselves with heaven and what his assignment is on our lives, what it is to come back to intimacy, to allowing transformation to take place in our lives, that we, we so desire to become more Christ-like. I don't want to become more like Janine. I'm pretty rubbish on my best day. But when I'm Jesus, I'm pretty unstoppable. When you, when you literally are clothed in him and you walk out, you know that people are going to encounter Jesus. They're going to encounter truth. They're going to encounter freedom. That's what is available to us this morning. Do you want some of that? Can we stand? Maybe the band can come up. Close your eyes for a moment. Put your hand on your heart. Holy Spirit. Father, we just, first and foremost, ask for your forgiveness. Where there's times when we've allowed our own comfort, our own agendas, our fear, our insecurities, our comparisons, when we've put limitations on ourselves because of our upbringing, because of our trauma, we ask forgiveness, Father, when that's clouded our vision of our God-given assignment. And right, right now, Father, I just release a fresh outpouring of boldness and courage a fearlessness, a fierceness that would come upon your bride, that nothing would hinder us from stepping into what you've called us to be, which is true followers, true disciples, true apprentices of Jesus. Father, I pray for us that that need to know what it is to be intimate with you again. To step into a place of being close, so close that we can hear the heartbeat of heaven. For those of us who, who just are, oh, we just want to be more like you, Jesus. Transform us. That that heart cry, that you would come and begin to shift and work in people's lives. And Father, that you would then bring a fresh commissioning to your bride. That we would have a revelation of what it is to do what Jesus did. That there's going to be, that when people look at us, Jesus, they're going to see you. They're not going to see me. That we're going to do away with how we we are towards the world that we, they're not going to see us through a charismatic lens culture but there's going to be a kingdom culture that your bride embraces oh Jesus wash over us with your holiness and your purity that we can become more like you